Hi, and welcome back to OA On Air via social distancing. I'm Kyan Isaacson. This week, Hugh Drummond fills in for Cosmo on 321 Go. Suzanne Morse interviews Bill Bronner, Director of Housing Preservation and Policy with the Community Economic Development Assistance Corporation, otherwise known as CDAC. And Tom and I wrap up 2020. First up, 321 Go. Hey, everyone. Happy holidays. It's uh, Hugh Drummond here and filling in for the great Cosmo Macero, who is uh, uh, not uh, available this week. Uh, but I'm joined by Cayenne. Hi, Cayenne. Hello, Hugh. How are you? I'm doing okay. It's, uh, we're recording on a day of uh, big snow here in Massachusetts. Yes. I'm, I'm a little sad. I love a good snowstorm. I feel like I'm missing out a little bit. But as soon as that snow turns to rain, I won't be sad anymore. Yeah, definitely. Well, it's been a, a pretty historic week in, in the country on... On several fronts, um, but I think uh, you and I, we talked offline before, and uh, the big news is the vaccine, the rollout of the vaccine. December 2020, the United States began to punch back. Ten days before Christmas, Christmas came early, Hanukkah came early, all of the things. First vaccines administered this week. Um, you know, I remember back in March when we were all having these conversations and the initial thought process was years before a vaccine. Um, and here we are much less than years, uh, not even a year later. Of course, they did have a basis to start with, which was incredibly helpful. Um, but really giving people, I think, as we go into 2021, too, that there is a light at the end of this tunnel. Um, which I think is very necessary as we go into winter and people start to hunker down, think more things are closed. And, you know, maybe it gives people a peace of mind to say, okay, yes, I can do this for a few more months um, because the light is there. And I, I hope that's the case because I think we all want normal sooner rather than later. Um, and politically, you know, we can't get away from politically, the, the capital was there, the funding was there uh, to get it done, which is oftentimes one of the biggest hurdles to getting anything done swiftly. Yeah, I mean, I, I really, we, we have to uh, uh, really applaud the uh, Operation Warp Speed and the amazing science that took place with America's uh, pharmaceutical industry and uh, to, to make this happen. And you're right, you know, you made a good point. There is light at the end of the tunnel here, but it is not the time to let your guard down. Um, it means that uh, we still need to, um, you know, follow all of the safety protocols um, and, and that will um, that will get us there. But, uh, you know, it, it's interesting. I, I know that, um, we're uh, vaccinating the America's uh, healthcare workers first, as well as the uh, elder, elderly people, uh, most of whom are mostly those in the long-term care facilities. But, um, you know, by, by late spring, this is going to start to be available, hopefully, in the local CBS, Walgreens, doctor's offices, and, um, you know, make its way into the general population. It's really an amazing moment. And... Um, I think it's really important right now that uh, we all um, 
you know, take the vaccine seriously and, and look at the upside um, of it, uh, you know, have confidence in, the, in, in this vaccine, uh, the first one on the market, but those that follow, um, it is uh, uh, important that uh, we get enough people vaccinated to, to slow down this virus. And this vaccine is far safer, far safer than the uh, complications and, and uh, uh, symptoms of coronavirus. Yeah, you, it's so 70%, I believe is what Dr. Fauci has said, we need 70% of the country vaccinated in order to reach herd immunity for the other 30% and get us to a place where we can go back to normal. Um, there's a lot of misinformation and vague information <laughs> um, being generated around the internet. I think anyone's Facebook feed is probably a jumble of real news, fake news, and then just discussions of people that pretend to be experts um, about what this vaccine entails. For people who are, are nervous about it, questioning it, I would encourage you to go find reputable news outlets. There is an abundance of information available. Um, and not just, you know, the New York Times and the Washington Post and the Boston Globe, you know, go to some science journals, read from people who know what they're talking about. Um, there's a lot of people concerned that this vaccine was rushed and what does that mean? But from every scientific journal and scientist that I have listened to, that is no reason to be scared of this vaccine, um, that no steps were missed. But going back to sort of that political capital and the will to get this done quickly, things were expedited that normally because of just bureaucracy take an incredibly long time. Um, and if we want to get back to normal, we need that 70% vaccinated, which means when it's available, everyone, or not everyone, but 70% of people are going to have to be okay with getting it. Um, and that's a, you know, I think we talk about, we've talked about on the podcast before those political discussions that take place around the holidays at the table, which that's a whole other thing that we're going to talk about, which is holidays, of course, are going to look different again this year. Um, but there's a lot of good information that people should be taking the time to read and educate themselves about so that they can feel confident to get this vaccine when the time comes. Yeah. I mean, we've seen, uh, you're absolutely right. The AP had a poll released um, uh, last week, I, I believe, that said that found that half of Americans would be willing to take the vaccine. Our own um, uh, PR uh, affiliate, Seven Letter Insight, uh, did a poll where they found uh, about 43% of voters would, would take uh, the first vaccine. So it's roughly in line with that, you know, almost half the population. But we need to get beyond that. We need uh, more people to uh, be confident in this vaccine. And so, uh, you know, you're right, read, read authoritative um, uh, uh, news outlets and then share that news with your friends and family. I mean, friends, family tend to, to get a lot of information from each other and, um, and, and trust each other. Uh, even if there are political differences, they, there's usually some degree of family respect. So it's, uh, it's important that uh, people line up. I'm ready to get a vaccine as soon as it is available to me. So as we talk about the vaccine, talk about COVID continuing to actually not even continuing. Uh, numbers have gone up exponentially. 
um, all over the country. Massachusetts is in a more strict shutdown, as is most of California, where I currently am. Um, the holidays will once again look different. I know that my Thanksgiving looked very different. A lot of people's did. Unfortunately, a lot of people's Thanksgivings didn't look different, which is part of the reason that we are in this uptick. Um, but let's talk about that a little bit. You're a bit in what you're going to do, how, what are some of the things you have done and what are you thinking as you guys go into Christmas? Yeah, well, I mean, I think like a lot of people, um, we've been doing um, virtual uh, gatherings with with family and friends, Um, you know, not necessarily a virtual dinner, but uh, scheduling time uh, on a weekly basis where we gather uh, via Zoom or via online conferencing and um, video conferencing and kind of uh, see each other's faces talk about things that are going on, bring the kids into the video uh, screen so that they uh, can see their grandparents and cousins and, and things like that. Um, we, and, and we talk about, uh, you know, what we're planning for our meals and, you know, tips and tricks and things like that. Um, I, I love to cook. And so I really miss the uh, kind of the, um, challenge that comes with putting together a, a lot of food, a big meal. And, um, but it's, it's been fun to kind of look at a big meal and then downsize it for just, uh, in my case, a family of five. And so, you know, doing things like maybe I don't need to do a a full roast and I can do individual steaks, uh, or maybe it's not a full turkey, uh, certainly not a big 25 pounder, but maybe, you know, a turkey breast or, or uh, a smaller bird or, or things like that and, and, you know, right-sizing the meal, but also allowing me to get a little bit creative with, with what I do uh, with those recipes because, you know, I'm really not at risk of, of ruining, ruining a meal for 25 just for, just for five, so <laughs> I can run the risk. Yeah, I did. I just still did a full Thanksgiving dinner. I know a lot of people were like, I'm just going to order Chinese food or order pizza and do something different. For me, the meal is was an important thing. My husband was very quick to note. He's like, you're going through all this trouble for the three of us, but really just for yourself. Um, and he was right because my son doesn't even like anything Thanksgiving related. For Christmas, I feel like it's important to keep some things the same for the sake of my son. I'm sure you feel the same for your kids. You know, I think Christmas morning will look very similar in terms of obviously present opening. We usually do a big breakfast, things like that, that are important to us. And um, we'll probably zoom in the grandparents so they can watch because they're usually there. And I think that will be, I think this is going to be a holiday that is harder, particularly for parents and grandparents who are, who are far away, who are going to be part of like that, that Christmas morning joy that comes with having little kids around. Um, And, you know, I know that we're all sort of zoomed out to a certain extent, but I think this is going to be one of those days where that connection, particularly with the younger kids and people's lives is going to be very important. Yeah, I agree. You know, it's, it's been a year of so much loss and and distance and um, but it's also a reminder that, that every moment is special and every moment counts and um, to kind of look at your loved ones in a special way and, and, you know, cherish any time that you can spend with them, even if it's uh, 
uh, virtual. So you touched on cooking. Let's quickly pivot there a little bit more. You're a very good cook. You're going to say like, oh, thank you. You're going to be, but you are, and you're very into it. What are you thinking for your family? What are you going to do that's different and special this year that you couldn't do otherwise when there's 20? It's, it is harder to cook specialty dishes for the masses. Yeah. Um, and particularly, I know when you're a family, a lot of different tastes. Yeah. So <laughs> <laughs> that perhaps you can cater to differently. Well, you know, one of our traditions, which has always been uh, very special to us, is that we have a, a neighbor that hosts a uh, Christmas Eve uh, uh, feast of the seven fishes uh, uh, dinner, uh, kind of an open house dinner event. And obviously, that's not going to happen this year. So what? But but as a family, it's been uh, it's been special to us to be a part of their family all these years. So. We're actually, I am planning to do a uh, kind of a mini version of that here, um, kind of more like uh, an appetizer version. So, um, you know, so, so Christmas Eve will be um, kind of a mix up of, of that, of seafood dishes in small portions. And then on Christmas Day, um, actually, I'm still figuring out my menu. I have, uh, I have two non-turkey eaters and uh three turkey eaters so i you know i have to figure out uh um you know or i shouldn't say turkey eaters it, it's more like if two that are uh, love red meat and and three that uh, don't love it as much and so i'll probably end up doing a red uh meat dish along with a poultry dish of some sort yeah, for us, um, Christmas Eve has usually been a bigger thing with the family, and then Christmas morning meal is big with us. Um, I can't have a Christmas morning without mimosas. Um, even as a child, I at least had sparkling cider. Um, so that is a tradition for me that must continue. I've made the same thing for Christmas morning every year. Um, and then I think Christmas will just, like the rest of the day, we'll just keep it casual, um, which is kind of nice. You know, for anyone who normally gets caught up in the rush of Christmas, which is going to this person's house and this person's house and getting dressed up and, you know, eating meals and juggling families, um, I will say that there is a really nice, this is a little cheesy, but there is a beauty in the simplicity um, of having a having a very small focused Christmas. Um, some of my favorite Christmases in recent memories our one year, my son got really sick. <laughs> um, we were, we had to, you know, come home Christmas Eve morning. He would, you know, get a last minute flight, the whole thing. Christmas day was just my husband and my son and me. And it was uh, one of my favorites to date. We didn't get out of our pajamas. He got to play with his toys all day. We didn't feel like we were, you know, bustling around from house to house. And um, I don't know. I think that there's, there's the opportunity to make very nice, different memories this year if people can kind of embrace where we're at. Yeah, I agree. I know. That's uh, my hallmark message for everybody. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. One one other thing that uh, I think people are having fun doing because I've seen it uh, on on different social media 
is that different communities are posting like here are some streets that have really good lights and, and things like that holiday lights um and uh so doing a family drive around some of these neighborhoods um uh, could be in the cards for us here yeah i we did a really great uh drive through two nights ago that was a lot of fun um and really well done near where we are and you know there's you just got to find you got to find the magic in yeah. other places but it's there it is there well speaking of magic um one, one of the things that uh we have going for us here in in, in massachusetts uh uh, this week is a, a big snowstorm, which mm -hmm. which adds to the holiday mystique or the uh, you know that kind of hallmark moment of what you what you think of when you think of the holidays. You think of you know trees with snow and lights and you know just uh, the the quiet that goes along with it. Um, but for a lot of kids, um, you know, COVID robbed them of a lot. Uh, and one of the one of the things that uh, many school districts did was can't cancel uh, having a snow day on on the uh, uh, with the storm yeah, because they have virtual learning. What do you think of that? Well, we should mention too. It's not just that COVID has ruined the snow day for kids right now. It has essentially ended snow days forever. Uh, with the idea that virtual learning is now easy to do. People can hop on Zoom. I think we're always going to have that option going forward, um, which will really change the dynamic of a snow day, which makes me very sad. I mean, even as a grown-up, um, I'm bummed to be missing the snowstorm that's happening in Massachusetts right now. I love a good snowstorm. Some of my favorite memories with my son are going outside and playing in the snow. Um, my friends and I were texting earlier about, you know, years and years ago before the online updates were a thing just waiting for the ticker at the bottom of the screen mm -hmm. to find out if your school was canceled the next day and you know i grew up in canton so it was like you'd, you'd tune in and it would be on d and you'd be like oh my gosh i have to wait like another 15 minutes and just wait for it to scroll by yeah. um you know we've i think as <laughs> we've all joked that uh, kids these days don't even know the pain of waiting for that ticker. Um, and now there's going to be a whole generation of kids that just aren't ever going to get a true snow day like we used to. That makes me sad. Yeah, you know, the, the other um, challenge with this um, is the loss of uh, uh, kids being able to go out and get a quick uh, buck shoveling someone's driveway. I mean, if, mm -hmm. uh, you know, the snow comes down and I have a, uh, my youngest is, is a 10 year old girl and she, uh, is always saying, Hey, you know, how can I earn 20 bucks? And so today it would be a perfect day, but she has, uh, at least, well, uh, we're recording, uh, in the late morning here. So she has at least a couple more hours of, uh, virtual school before she can get a break. Yeah, I did see that there are some superintendents in Massachusetts that went ahead and said, you know what, take the snow day, staff take off the day, students take off the day, everyone deserves sort of the magic that a snow day brings. Um, and I think that that's, I like that move. I support those that did it. I understand those who didn't. Um, education is at a premium and our kids have been robbed of a lot of that time already. But for mental health and just 
emotional well-being, I feel like a snow day was really deserved. So I th- I commend those that went ahead and gave their kids and staff the day off personally. Yeah, I'm with you. I think um, especially the first snow day of the season, It's uh, there's something very magical about it, uh, especially when it coincides with the holiday season and um it's a uh, it's 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 a loss to to not have that happen today but uh you know a lot's been lost for these kids and um i do applaud the the hard work of the teachers and and the students in in you know how they've been how they've been forced to to pivot and manage their education in a uh, very challenging way well, I hope you, uh, I hope for everyone in Massachusetts got, get some time to go out and enjoy the snow. I'm a little jealous that it looks like you guys will have a white Christmas. Um, Hugh, thank you for stepping in to Cosmos News this week. I think this On is our, our, our last one for the, uh, for the year, right? This is. This is the last episode of OA On Air for 2020. Um, so, you know, I'll sign off as all sign off at the at the end of the year we will uh see you next year talk to you next year Hugh yeah happy holidays to you happy holidays everyone thank you this is Suzanne Morse with seven letters and I am here with Bill Bronner Director of Housing Preservation and Policy for the Community Economic Development Assistance Corporation, or CDAC. Bill recently released an analysis called Chapter 40T at 10 and held a webinar that looked at how Massachusetts has successfully preserved affordable housing in the last decade, and he's here today to talk about it. Bill, welcome to OA On Air. Thank you. Good to be here. So let's start with the basic. What does affordable housing preservation mean? And then why was Chapter 40T passed in 2009? Well, to understand affordable housing preservation, you need to go back to the beginning when the affordable housing was developed in the first place. So in most cases, developers of affordable housing um, get governmental funding to create their projects. And Basically, it's a deal. The developer says, I will make this housing affordable for lower, lower moderate income folks for a period of time, and the government will give me the money to sort of create the project. So in general, these deals, these restrictions, last for 20 to 40 years. So after that period of time, the owner of the property then has the ability to turn the property into market rate housing and potentially to displace the residents that are living there. So affordable housing preservation is the process of working in one way or another to keep these existing affordable housing projects affordable and habitable for the long term. And there's a whole bunch of tools that we have to do it. And one groundbreaking tool was Chapter 40T, which was passed in 2009. And it took many years of of struggle and advocacy to get to that point. And Chapter 40T has a number of components. But the biggest one is that if a developer, an owner, 
decides that they want to sell their existing affordable housing project without restrictions on who can purchase it and how it stays affordable, then the state has a right of offer and a right of first refusal to purchase that housing so that it can remain affordable. So this is a really big deal. Um, there are a few other laws in the country, none that has had the success of Chapter 40T. So we were pretty proud to look at the results uh, in the study that I just did and in the forum that we recently had, um, which show uh, an, an excellent um, record where we preserve uh, 20,000 units and lost about 200 um, through sales over this period of time. Yeah, we should say that um, a lot of the uh, developments that we're talking about were, were built in the late 60s and the late 70s or in the early 70s. And some of them were pretty large scale. So, you know, a loss of these uh, a, a project or a development could mean the loss of 50 units or 100 units of affordable housing. And in a tight market like Massachusetts, that's a lot. Absolutely. Many of these existing affordable housing projects are over 100 units. Uh, some of the largest preservations we've done are over 500 units. So you're quite right. Um, preserving each one of these projects is very important. Yeah. Um, so talk a little bit about CDAC's role. You're the, uh, you're the director of uh, Housing Preservation and Policy for CDAC. Talk a little bit about what CDAC's role is in preserving affordable housing. CDAC has a number of roles uh, in preserving existing affordable housing. So let me just go through them. Sure. Um, the first one is a public policy role. So CDAC maintains uh, a database of existing privately owned affordable housing. And we can use this as a tool to understand what is likely to happen in the near future um, with various projects. We also are very involved working with other public agencies. And um, I chair the Preservation Interagency Working Group, which meets regularly to talk about uh, affordable housing preservation. And in addition, um, CDAC periodically puts out uh, papers and, and forums as we did recently. So public policy is the first area. A second one is that we have an acquisition loan program. So we can provide high loan to value acquisition financing for nonprofit preservation buyers of existing affordable housing. And this is a key tool for preserving housing that goes on the market. And finally, um, CDAC provides technical assistance. This is something we do with all sorts of existing housing, affordable housing, new construction housing. But uh, in my role in particular with housing preservation, I provide uh, technical assistance to nonprofits who are working on affordable housing and also to local government when they have questions about the housing stock that's in their town. So you mentioned the acquisition loan fund. Um, one thing in general that CDAC does is uh, provide early stage capital financing 
for 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 nonprofit affordable housing developers, both on uh, for both production and preservation projects. Um, you know, my next question is about the what tools may uh, made this um, affordable housing pro preservation effort successful, and one of those tools is the um, the right of first refusal. And um, I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about those tools, but also the interplay between that and the acquisition loan fund. Absolutely. So chapter 40T um, is, a, is a very complex law and it requires a lot of effort by a number of actors. Uh, the research that I did found that the most important actor has been the state through its Department of Housing and Community Development, or DHCD. So DHCD has a number of roles. One is that it administers the day-to-day -day operation of the law. And this takes about um, 1,000 hours a year, about half of a full-time equivalent person, um, just to do the day-to-day -day administration of the notices and all the pieces that go with Chapter 40T. In addition, uh, DHCD has been very supportive of housing preservation through its funding programs, um, through the, the way it ranks projects, through what's called the Qualified Allocation Plan. So the state working through DHCD has been really the key driver for the success of many of the preservation efforts, especially Chapter 40T. But my research also found that um, there's a, a full preservation ecosystem, as I think of it, um, here in the state that has been key to the success of our preservation work. So CDAC's acquisition financing is super important. If a nonprofit wants to purchase a multi-million dollar existing project, they have a short time frame, there's a high loan to value, which to say there's not a lot of cushion in the loan, um, they have to have terms that work well for the kind of acquisition they want to do. CDAC's ability to put that financing together is extremely important. So that's a, that's a uh, key t tool that we have. You know, we can't underestimate the right. skill of the preservation developers in Massachusetts. We just have some, some great agencies, nonprofit and for-profit, um, whether it's our smaller community development corporations or some of our larger nonprofits, just a really wide swath of experience here in the state. Um, in many cases, organized tenants have been key. Uh, you know, these are the folks that live in these existing uh, affordable housing projects, and they at times can be at great risk for displacement. And to the extent that they can be organized and they can be political in their local jurisdictions, that can be super helpful. Um, we talked about technical assistance a little bit, but these are complex transactions. So it's CDAC, it's other agencies, it's consultants and attorneys that we have. You know, there's just a, a wide range of skill sets that are needed to make these preservation uh, transactions work. You know, we have to have all the agencies on board. Um, for some of our projects, it's not just the state, but also the city that is really uh, important in making these transactions happen. Um, we need tools from the legislature, and they've been great. Um, they've provided bond funding periodically 
that makes uh, that capitalizes some of the programs that we use, and they've provided funding for the state um, housing tax credit, another key tool to making uh, these preservation transactions work. So it's a big range. It's a lot of people that that need to be on the same page, and thankfully in Massachusetts, that's what we've had over the last several years. Yeah, I would say that the existence of a really strong affordable housing and community development network and an ecosystem uh, really came through in that webinar that um, that you uh, did last week and uh, that that really having a strong relationship with the state housing agency DHCD, but also with all of this network of um, uh, developers has been, that was clearly a, a strong message as to why Massachusetts has been successful where other states haven't. Um, can you talk a little bit about um, a project, a successful affordable housing uh, preservation project? Sure. Um, let me talk about one called Newcastle Saranac. Sure. So this is a 97 unit historic property in downtown Boston. It's in the South End neighborhood. And uh, this has been an affordable housing project for the last 40 years or so. And recently, the owner proposed to sell the property without long-term affordability. So this was a, a very big concern for the tenants, for the city, for the state. Um, if we lost this project, you know, there's no way we can replicate anything like it in that neighborhood. Right. So the owner proposed to sell the property and the state um, through the chapter 40 T process designated Fenway CDC to be the state's actor and purchase the property. And they worked in partnership with a for-profit named Shockit. So these two agencies, the nonprofit and the for-profit, worked together and um, CDAC made an acquisition loan of $29 million in January of 2019. That's CDAC's largest loan ever mm. to the nonprofit Fenway CDC so that it could purchase the property. And um, it needed significant rehab. And so over the next 18 months, Fenway and their partner Shockett applied to the city and to the state for preservation financing, worked through a whole host of issues relating to the rehab of the property, some contamination at the property, all sorts of things. And finally, in June of this year, the project closed on its permanent financing and repaid CDAC. That was very exciting for us. And at the <laughs> same time, it started construction. And this, uh, the renovations will take over a year um, as they work through different sets of units at a time to not displace the people that are living there. But uh, the property will now have a long-term affordability restriction. Um, it will protect all of the tenants and it will be renovated uh, extensively. So that means it'll be a, a habitable quality place to live for many years to come. Yeah, and uh, the renovations, that's a fairly common part of the process around preservation. Because as we mentioned, some of these projects are 40 to 50 years old. So the rehabilitation and renovation, it's just, it's not uncommon for 
um, projects to go through that what this, they've gone through the preservation process, correct? Right, it's extremely common. Um, generally, affordable housing projects don't have the same ability as, as market projects to get uh, new financing midstream. So if you own market apartments, you know, you can go to your bank and get a new mortgage and, right. and, and put some money into it. That's typically not possible, um, except for every 30 to 40 years for these affordable housing properties. So what you have at the end of that period is a fairly significant need for renovation. Yeah, and one additional point to make is you mentioned Newcastle Saranac, that's here in Boston, but these preservation projects are happening all over the state. They're not just happening in in Boston or in Greater Boston, but you know, in other um, in other communities, you know, across Massachusetts. That's right. Um, in August, um, CDAC provided an acquisition loan to a Retirement Housing Foundation for a hundred-unit project in Attleboro, and that's in the southeast part of the state, uh, very close to Rhode Island. So not in any way the same kind of market area as Boston. So Bill, is there anything we missed? Well, let me just point listeners to the CDAC webpage. That's www.cdac.org slash preservation. And there you can find uh, the paper Chapter 40T at 10, Massachusetts Housing Preservation Statute's Successful First Decade. And that was the paper that was just released last month. And also up on the webpage will be um, a video of our recent forum about the paper. Bill Bronner, thank you for joining us on OA On Air today. Thanks so much for having me. Hi, Diane. Hi, Tom. How are you? Two minutes for Tom. It's really, it's really three or four or five minutes with Diane. It's, it's terrific. Last Sometimes show of the year. Online. Last show of the year. And what a year it's been. It's, it's I don't finally, know what you mean. It's finally, it's finally, it's finally in our, in our rearview mirror. Thank God. Yeah. Um, and it's over with. And there will be a brighter day, 2021, with all the vaccines that are coming along and better understanding as to how to handle the COVID virus, how people can better take care of themselves. It'll be a better prosperous year with a brand new president sitting in the White House. There we are. Here we are. The brighter day is coming. I personally am very happy to put 2020 um, behind me. I know many others are. I have been trying to think, you know, lately about what's been good about 2020 because it hasn't all been, you know, terrible for, I think most people, there's things that have come from it. I've certainly had more quality time with my son. Uh, And, uh, you know, just embrace sort of different ways of enjoying time, perhaps a bit more simple, if you will. Um, And of course, you know, we've got a new president coming in, which was elected and just certified this week by the Electoral College. We have vaccines on the way. Um, you know, there's there's some good. There is some good. There's plenty of good. And what we have to do is just make sure that in the final stages of what appears to be the final stages of COVID-19, nobody wants to get it at this late stage. It'd be silly while well, vaccine is on the horizon. Now, it might be some months before we 
have an opportunity to get it and, and, and be inoculated. But the fact of the matter is it's here. We need for everybody to understand that they still need to be cautious, social distancing, and making sure that their mouth and nose are covered when they're out in public. Other than that, you know, it's, it's the holiday season and it's gonna be a quieter, more genteel, uh, closer to family holiday season. And for that, we have a lot of, a lot of things to be thankful for. So, so with that, I, I, I bid the year 2020 goodbye. I look forward to celebrating virtually the holiday season amongst us with family, friends, and, and colleagues, and uh, kind of looking forward to that. And we'll usher in 2021 together, you and I, in the first Thursday of the month. Yes, we will. I will talk to you next year. Well, I'll talk to you before then too, but officially on this podcast, I'll talk to you next year. Looking forward to it. Thanks, Kanye. <laughs> Thanks, Tom. All right. That's it for this week's episode and for the year 2020 of OA on Air. On behalf of all of us here at O'Neill Associates and Seven Letter ONA, we wish you and your family and friends a happy holidays. Talk to you next year.